You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. All right. Welcome to season two, episode two. Hi, Emily. Hi. All right, everyone. We are back and we are excited to continue our conversations about dyslexia, literacy instruction, and the social emotional impacts on our students and their families. And we are kicking off October, which is Dyslexia Awareness Month, with an episode dedicated to the contradictory signs of dyslexia. So we're excited to dig into that. Always appreciate the feedback that we get from listeners. So if you feel like sending that in, we greatly appreciate it. And we might read it on a podcast episode, but this feedback is from RJDK22. And it says, just what I need as a specialized instructional facilitator, your podcasts always seem to come in a timely manner. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and resources. I have shared them with teachers, administrators, and parents. So thank you so much, RJ, your feedback and tuning in and sharing with others. So thank you. Yes, we love hearing from our listeners. Thank you so much. All right. So I'm going to start today's episode with sort of like a little, a little story to think about. So I live in New England and we have pretty tough winters here. I don't really look forward to them, but just sort of imagine, pretend that it's late winter and you have plans to start a garden. Go out, you purchase your seeds, your pots, the soil, some grow lights so that you can nurture those little seeds and seedlings indoors before it's warm enough to move and transplant them outside into the ground because that's what we New Englanders have to do. We can't just put them into the frozen ground in April. So think about that. You take all those steps for your precious seeds so that you can look forward to a flourishing garden, right? You wouldn't wait to water your seeds in order for them to sprout, would you? No. No diligent about watering them every day and watching for signs of germination or watching them become seedlings and full-fledged plants that can bloom, produce fruits or vegetables, and then of course make more seeds. So knowing all those steps that it takes to nurture and grow a flourishing garden so that it can produce fruits and vegetables, let's translate that into what we do with our children. Why would we wait to see if our kids need help? If our kids are kind of like those seeds, we wouldn't wait to water those seeds. So why would we wait on important interventions for the children really are showing those signs 
that they're challenged by learning how to read. And that's what we want to get into today with you. The importance of recognizing those common red flags or signs for dyslexia, some of the things you're going to be seeing from the early ages to beyond. We're going to get into some of the contradictory signs that despite these wonderful things you may be witnessing in your children and your students, they may be struggling in this area. And then finally, we want to get into a discussion about something we are calling late bloomers. They're really such thing as a late bloomer when it comes to reading instruction. And we also have a really great question from a listener at the end. So we'll get into that. All right. So <laughs> Casey, we're going to kick this off. We talk about some of the, there's just these common misunderstandings about dyslexia. So since we really want to ground ourselves on the focus of this podcast, we're going to just go into some of the things that you may notice for kids with dyslexia. And Casey's going to kick it off with an early childhood piece. Yeah. So when we're talking about dyslexia, I, I always think it's important to root ourselves in the definition. And so we do have an agreed upon definition that from the International Dyslexia Association. So I'm going to read that just to kind of root us in dyslexia, and then we'll kind of break it down into the different things that we see by ages. So the current definition is dyslexia is a specific learning disability that is neurobiological in origin. It is characterized by difficulties with accurate and or fluent word recognition and by poor spelling and decoding abilities. These difficulties typically result from a deficit in the phonological component of language that is often unexpected in relation to other cognitive abilities and the provision of effective classroom instruction. Secondary consequences may include problems in reading comprehension and reduced reading experience that can impede growth of vocabulary and background knowledge. So with that definition, if we're thinking about our students, you know, one of the things that comes up often, and Emily and I've talked about this in previous episodes, is the myth that we have to wait until students are in third grade or older to identify or even look for symptoms of dyslexia. And we know that that is not true. And we've done a whole bunch of episodes last season talking about dyslexia. But when we're looking at our preschool students, right? We can see some of these early signs even in preschool. So they may have trouble learning, you know, some common nursery rhymes. They may have difficulty learning and remembering the names of the letters in the alphabet. They may not yet be able to recognize their own name or the letters in their name. And a lot of times we have some speech delays and some speech concerns as well, like persistent baby talk or some of the phonological components of sound production and things like that. And then as we move into kindergarten and first grade, as our students are starting to receive instruction, we may see that they have some reading errors that really lack an understanding of that connection of the sounds to the letters. They may not yet understand that words come apart and um, really may start to complain about just how hard reading is. And I know we've talked about this previously about how even our young students 
recognize when reading is hard for them. There's been some research done even in, you know, the kinder and first grade classrooms where students are hyper aware of their difficulties in reading and the impacts that that has on their social emotional learning as well. So those are some of the things that, that we'll see in our younger students. Thank you, Casey. So as we get into uh, beyond first grade, then we start to, well, we still might see some, some speech problems here and there. We may even have some hesitation, some difficulty with just like finding that exact word, like it may be on the tip of their tongue, but they just can't retrieve it. Yeah. But we start to really see the, the lack of progress in fluency, in, in decoding mm-hmm. words as they get older with stumbling over, especially multisyllabic words oral reading fluency really begins to suffer even more. You just don't see that we see a real lack of progress. We're going to see some really, really tough spelling because kids really have Mm -hmm. not solidified their phonological development in order to be able to transition into the encoding portion, the spelling, to learn those those skills and strategies. Mm -hmm. Reading becomes, of course, since it's very laborious, becomes really this task that feels like this chore. It's not enjoyable, which impacts homework, as we all know. And then we start to see as kids get older, that negative self-talk, the lack of self-esteem, maybe some behaviors Mm -hmm. that are negative around that. They may also have just like really fantastic ideas, but it's just so difficult to compose those to put them into written forms. So Things can also be impacted as kids get older, just at, since children aren't reading the sheer volume of books as your typical reader is, then their vocabulary really is impacted negatively. They just don't have the same volume of vocabulary words as a typical reader would have that is reading maybe lengthier chapter books and so forth. So, and once again, just because they're having to read harder books, but they still haven't developed their decoding skills. Reading just once again, really is just so, so difficult. Um, So those are just in a nutshell, some of the things that you may notice. We can't stress enough to be looking so, so carefully and keenly at those early years. Now you may have a late talker. Sometimes that can be one of the early signs. We know that there is a genetic factor. That's something that mm-hmm. we want to be really, really keenly aware of as well. Because if there is a family member, it doesn't have to necessarily be a parent, but another family member that had a history of reading difficulties, there's a good chance that if you're seeing some signs that your child is struggling, that they could be on that path as well. So earlier is better, of course. Yeah. And I think as we kind of go back to the definition, you can see this cascading effects that happen with our students. So when, when our kids are get older and they've had difficulties and, and they haven't had the appropriate instruction that they need that impacts school and life, but also that social emotional piece. And, and, you know, when we're working with those older students and we're looking at those secondary consequences that are listed in the definition, it really does begin to impact everything for both the academic pieces, but also I think for 
for self-preservation of self-esteem. The earlier we can catch it, the better. Another thing for us to look at are the understanding that the characteristics of dyslexia really do exist on a continuum. So while we have these characteristic markers of dyslexia and those remain consistent, the range in which they impact an individual differs in severity. So when we understand that dyslexia exists on a continuum, it really can impact people differently and even within the same family. So while one person may struggle with decoding for another person, perhaps it's fluent reading. So one thing for us to note is that dyslexia exists on a continuum. And so while the characteristic markers of dyslexia remain consistent, the range in which they impact an individual differs in severity. And that can be true even within the same family. So while one person may struggle with decoding single words and reading or spelling, and so it really does become individualized in terms of the impacts that dyslexia has on those people who have dyslexia. So understanding that um, I think really is a necessity for us so that we can better understand learning profiles and then really can help us determine which instructional path will best serve the student. When we're working with our students, we really are thinking in terms of dyslexia and the impacts that it has both on their academics, but also on the social emotional components. Yes, absolutely. So important to note about the continuum, especially within families, because I've worked with Mm -hmm. families where multiple children have dyslexia and the degrees of severity are definitely there. We also want to stress that with dyslexia, that requires intervention. Okay. That doesn't mean it's the same for every single person. It depends because as we just said, dyslexia happens on a continuum, but it requires intervention. And when we mean require, that means like, yeah, it's a must do you have to. It's because, you know, sometimes we hear like, oh, well, I struggled with reading as a kid and you know what? I, I turned out okay. So I kid will too. It's really, really important to be so, so careful with a statement like that because once again, dyslexia is on a continuum. What you may have gotten by as a child, it may not be the same case for your own child. I also think if we're thinking about intervention and understanding that dyslexia is also lifelong, dyslexia will impact their life in different ways because it is neurobiological in origin, meaning that that is the brain wiring system that exists. So I think that that understanding that as well. So when we deny students of appropriate instruction, or we, you know, just think, oh, if we give them time that it'll it'll work out or things like that. Those are actually detrimental to our kids. Yeah. And even pulling out the intervention too soon, which we see happen quite a bit. And that is failure to recognize that the intervention, Mm -hmm. the accommodations have to evolve over time because the dyslexia doesn't go away as Casey just said. So things are going to look different for a middle schooler. We've said this a lot of times before, but that's for a second grader. So um, just something to keep in mind that yes, the intervention is required and it must evolve over time. So knowing that 
we are going to go into some a few more of the deeper challenges of dyslexia that almost feel contradictory. Mm-hmm. Like despite this, despite all this awesome stuff going on, this child is exhibits this challenge in this academic area or wherever. Yeah, I think this is what trips people up Mm. the most when we're talking about dyslexia or trying to understand it. People are leaning into trying to break down what dyslexia is and isn't. I think these contradictory pieces that come up really tend to kind of trip people up as they move through this understanding. The other thing besides tripping them up is that I think that some people who look at one side of the coin it actually could delay the intervention because they're thinking, well, they have such awesome comprehension when we're in book discussions and talking about books together. And we want to be really, really careful (laughs) with kiddos like that. So we sometimes hinder what is appropriate for that child. Yeah. So when we're talking about these contradictory challenges that can come up, what we mean by that is Despite, you know, all these learning challenges, dyslexia is not linked to intelligence. So our students are very smart. They're very bright. And for that reason, a lot of them fall through the cracks or go under people's radar. Okay. So yes. So there, so our first one is no matter what, this is not an issue with cognition that despite having issues with reading or spelling language, any of those areas, this is not a matter of, you know, it's not due to a lack of intelligence. And we see that when we're talking about students who can comprehend spoken words, they can comprehend stories, movies, and they're, they're engaged in high level conversations with you. But those, on the other hand, they struggle to understand what is read. And they're not able to express what they've read in the same manner in which they can when someone has read something to them. Casey, I think that's one of the most common ones because we may have these kids, kiddos with dyslexia, and this is one of the wonderful things I love at becoming little experts on things. And so you get into a conversation, Mm -hmm. say about T-Rexes. And they're going to be able to just give so much back in that conversation verbally because they're just little, little sponges for that. But when it comes to getting into the nitty gritty of the reading and written instructions and following, that's where things fall down. Okay. The next one is we really see that some of these kids Uh, are real out-of-the-box thinkers. They Mm -hmm. may be highly creative. We've seen and read many times for people with dyslexia can almost like visualize and see things in 3D, which I always love having discussions about people who have dyslexia. But despite having all of that great problem-solving and creativity, they just can't harness that into their reading and writing output or their skills that are just so important in the classroom setting. Okay. And then we also have kiddos who may, and these are especially speaking to older students, have these great advanced ideas. 
and can articulate them in conversations with you and so forth. But despite having advanced ideas, they may have retrieval issues. Like they just, they have that idea sort of floating around, mm-hmm. but they just can't pull the right words and maybe say things like, and stuff like that, or, you know, and this word or that, or, or you know what I mean. So yeah. the retrieval issue is one of these common things that happens with our kids with dyslexia. And that is one of our, our common symptoms that we see. But with the problem with the retrieval can sort of perpetuate into the written form when they may have all these fabulous ideas and just can't pull them out into written form. So that's why they need things like graphic organizers and developing things like maybe a word bank so that they can really go through maybe a brainstorming or word generating process with you and guide so you can scaffold them. Yeah. I think that that word bank is such an important piece because we often, we often think of phonology when we're talking about like the little, our younger students, but phonology really does impact our older kids as well. And where I see that is where they will have vocabulary words that they have misrepresented and they're choosing a word that sounds similar to the word they're thinking, but it's not the actual word a word bank can really help them so that they can really use that academic vocabulary in an appropriate way. And they can access it as you're working on the phonology piece of those larger academic tier two vocabulary words that happens often with my middle schoolers. Okay. And then Casey, what's our last sort of contradictory thing? Yeah. And And I think that that kind of comes into play. Word bank is something, a a strategy, excuse me, that we can use for this last one as well, because oftentimes the oral output for our students is very high. You know, they have a lot of information. They may be able to learn that information quickly in the areas of math, science, history, and they're able to have these rich conversations, but then their written output is at a much lower level and they're not acquiring or utilizing those high vocabulary words or even sentence structures. So we will see this, this big variance in their language, oral language versus their written language. So sometimes people notice that they may see the decoding start to pick up, but the encoding is always a little bit slower. So it's something to keep in mind there. All right. So we dove into all of those signs and and things that you just may feel kind of puzzling, like why, like they have this great comprehension. Why are they still struggling with reading? Why is their fluency still not improving? These are all signs we want to be watching for, especially as kids get older and looking carefully at any kind of written output that your students give you, like any spelling assessments, written assignments, those are extremely revealing. So we're going to transition a little bit into the discussion of are there really any late bloomers when it comes to learning how to read? So sure, when we think about the term late bloomer, late bloomer can mean a lot of things. It can mean, you know, someone who may be a late bloomer to the stage of puberty in their development. It, it can mean so many different things in different contexts. But when we're talking about academics, with the uh, fundamentals of language and teaching children how to read, is there such thing as someone who 
is just a late bloomer. And these are some of the things you might hear. Oh, just give them some time. They'll get there. Let's just give it a year. They, they were young for their age. They have that late summer birthday. So maybe there's like a discussion of maturity where some kids just learn to read late. You might hear that. And those are really common conversations that both teachers and parents have. You might hear those, not just among parents, but among, you know, when you're in your, your teacher conferences. I was just going to jump in and say, you know, I think that the term late bloomers was something that has been used in the education world for the last 30 or so years. And it was really used, I think, to soften the blow a little bit Mm. to give parents this idea that children have this developmental lag, which was something that there was a developmental lag theory that was used previously. And it was really kind of designed for teachers' patience with students and and it really was applied to students who weren't catching on. But through that, it kind of over the years, I, I really feel like it justified interventions in an appropriate manner. When we fell into this idea of a developmental leg, it, it made it where we weren't having this sense of urgency to put in appropriate interventions at the early age. And so now we have all of this research, we have these studies and we've had them for about the last decade or so where we really do see that there is no such thing as a developmental leg theory. Really, in fact, there are no quote unquote late bloomers in terms of reading. And it's really been replaced with identifying those early reading weaknesses and and identifying that those are really a problem as a skill deficit. And, and when we look here at like the research, we're looking at the fact that late bloomers really are rare and that those mm. skill deficits are almost always what are preventing students from quote unquote blooming as readers. Right. And if we think about, if we are handing our kindergarten and first grade students books that clearly are patterned so that they can just look at the picture to guess or use the first letter um, and, and are prompted to do so. Okay. Cause I've heard plenty of picture power um, out yeah. there. Are we truly able to see whether they are making adequate progress if we have those books in their hands or should we be putting the codable books in their hands? You know the answer to that. You know what Casey and I (laughs) are going to say. So that is what I really see as a mismatch. Okay. And we dug into that in season one's our episode all about decodable readers and understanding, you know, how necessary to have that ample practice to bridge what they're learning into their reading. And that's what those decodable books do. And when we're providing students with materials that are not aligned with the science of reading or the research-based evidence practices, then we're really not setting our kids up for success. And we're in fact delaying their their reading. And could they be wrongly called a late bloomer because they're just not given the right tools. Right. And that's the point we want to make here. If they're not given the right tools to crack code in these early years, and it's not a matter at all of whether you're a late bloomer or not, it's because we need to look more carefully at, first of all, what the core reading 
instruction is looking like for all the kids. And then at what we're doing, what we're using in our intervention model and what we're putting in kids' hands. So Mm -hmm. There's a matter of delaying intervention, which happens, unfortunately, it just is the reality. We're trying to combat that with our podcast and, and sharing how important it is. And, and I think there's a lot of good legislation out there in the different states to try and put those early screeners in place. I know here in Massachusetts, that's happening, but it's not just about delay. There's also a mismatch of intervention. And when we have that delay, and this is a Shaywitz study that has gone back to the 90s. Shaywitz has said that first graders who really have had delayed intervention are 90% of the ones she studied still struggled with reading third grade and beyond, right? And this is not a new study. This is clear research that children are going, if they don't get those interventions, are still going to struggle. So just cannot stress enough that we look back and and replay this episode, listen to those red flags that we listed, listen again to what we're saying sounds like contradictory and really dig in, pick up overcoming dyslexia, look through that book. That is a great deep dive. It is highly beneficial for teachers and parents. And and Casey made such an important point when we were planning this episode. It's also a matter when we really get into the reality of late bloomers and and people who need to learn how to read and how this isn't a matter of being a late bloomer. Then we get into the problem of retention. And I think we need to be very cautious of retention. If we're following the myth of developmental lag or late bloomers, and we retain a child and we just provide them with more of the same, are we helping that child move forward? There's research about retention and when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate. And I I feel that sometimes it's used because the child hasn't made gains. And I really would encourage us to be mindful and to look at our core instruction and how things would change and what is needed and really rooting ourselves in research best practices instead of just repeating and hoping that the outcome will be different because it's, it's not going to. Right. So I think Casey just raises such a good point and that is going to take some huge shifts for many school districts in many schools to look at, you know, what is really going on in their core reading instruction and what needs to change and looking at the detriment of school retention. I was just going to say that there is a quote um, by Steve uh, Dextra, who's, which is one of my favorite quotes. And, and he says, you know, every child is at risk of not reading until they can read. And yeah. what we should do about that is good for everyone, essential for some and harms no one. Love it. Right there really said it all. Okay. We had once again, gone through the symptoms of dyslexia mentioned that once again, this is on a continuum learning to watch out for those things that feel contradictory. So despite having these strengths, this may still be a weakness. And then the whole discussion surrounding, is there really such thing as being a late bloomer, especially when it comes to learning how to read. And you can certainly, uh, we encourage you to share this episode, please. If you are just starting to have these conversations in your schools and districts, this we feel is just such an important episode, not just because October is Dyslexia Awareness Month, but because this is 
this is happening now, the urgency is now, and the time is now to make that change. So we did receive this question from a listener. So we're going to transition over into that. And the question was surrounding nonsense words. And I love having conversations with Casey as we plan because we just end up finding like, I feel the same way. Oh, I know. <laughs> we do that too. Because we're not in person. She's in Texas. I'm here in Massachusetts, but it feels good. So this person was wondering about assessments for nonsense words. Okay. So we wanted to just sort of talk about that. But as we spend more time talking, when we were in the planning phases of this episode, we realized this should probably be a future episode. So we will. So we'll briefly discuss nonsense words. Yeah. Um, I will but, say this, this yeah. question really got us kind of fired up. So then it we were did. like, oh my goodness, we need to talk about this in depth, but it did. It really did. It was funny. I'm like, oh my goodness, like this really should become an episode. We have a lot to say. So yes. first of all, why use nonsense words? And secondly, where are you going to get them from? So first of all, Casey, we know we use nonsense words, but we are in agreement that we use them sparingly. Casey and I both don't use nonsense words for teaching purposes because we are trying to infuse language into all parts of our lesson plans as much as we possibly can. Does that mean we never use nonsense words at all? No. We have used and do assess with nonsense words. However, we tend to do that sparingly. Casey, when you want to piggyback on that? Yeah. So if we're thinking about the purpose of nonsense words, it's to analyze how a child is applying their decoding skills. Mm -hmm. And that's really the purpose. So as Emily said, we use it sparingly. And I mean, like one to three mm -hmm. times a year mm -hmm. tops. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I know gets me a little bit fired up <laughs> is when I see nonsense <laughs> words being used on a daily or weekly basis and for the purpose of teaching nonsense words. And here's why. If we understand the orthographic mapping process, right, the process that's happening in our brain as we're linking sounds to letters and those become unitized in our brain, it's this loop and it has, so we're connecting sounds to the letters that get stored in our letter box. Sometimes I see teachers using nonsense words that have letter clusters that would not exist in our English language. So my question is, why are we doing that? It seems silly to me and it's a waste of time. And I really think it's something we need to be mindful of. The other thing is, is part of that orthographic loop is connecting to meaning. So we, when we're doing nonsense words, if we're not using them for assessment purposes to analyze how students are decoding, what is our purpose of using nonsense words? And so that would be my question, but I definitely think that's a big conversation that we could have as we dive deeper into nonsense words. So. <laughs> and you know what? I think that there are nonsense words, but we could also classify if we're doing a little assessment as nonsense syllables. Yeah. To see if they can be reading and decoding and um, solidifying their knowledge of the syllable types. Okay. So that's yes. certainly can be an important assessment here and there, but yes, we, we do it sparingly, but what we do see, you know, I, I'm not going to give my child, you know, whatever student I'm working with a nonsense word or syllable 
that ends with a letter V. And why? English words don't end in V. (laughs) All right, then. See? But unfortunately, I see resources out there that I I, I can't use, I wouldn't use, because as Casey mentioned before, uh, they don't follow the orthographic patterns of our language. I have to relay the story of Nicole Casey. Back when I was in my Fort Gillingham (laughs) training, we had to um, create lists of nonsense syllables. And we were Mm -hmm. thoroughly scrutinized (laughs) in our words. And it was an excellent exercise. It was very methodical. It was a great learning process. But yeah, it's one of these things that really, for both of us, kind of sticks in our craw. Things not following the orthographic patterns of the language. So I don't know if we have addressed everything about nonsense word assessments, but I think the gist of what we're trying to say is, is that we assess um, a couple times a year using something very carefully, very thoughtfully that matches what we have already taught our children to see if they right. have mastered. It's just one more tool in our toolbox to find out what is going on. But no, we do not devote a great deal of time with explicit teaching of nonsense words because our time is, we feel, is just so, so valuable with really bringing in language as much as we possibly can, all parts. So with that, uh, we uh, keep a lookout. Well, we are going to add this as a future episode. We, um, but yeah, we got, we got a little heated when we were discussing it in the planning phase, but in a good way, in a good yes. way. Passionate, so, I say. Yeah. Passionate, yes. Yeah, passionate. So <laughs> next time we have an amazing guest mm-hmm. who is yeah, going excited. to address a really, really important topic for both parents and teachers. And I'm not going to say who this person is, but they are going to dive into the discussion of homework. (laughs) And we know there's a lot of strong feelings, a lot of big feelings about homework, right? We have big feelings. So this guest is just going to really, really help develop clear strategies and and talk about the challenges of it and what we can do to help our kids. So this is great to address not only our kids with dyslexia, but also anybody that struggles with executive function, which a lot of our kids do in the planning phases, Um, but also the social emotional side of homework, because that really can stir up, Mm -hmm. like I said, big feelings. So uh, we look forward to that episode. Yeah. And um, thank you so much for joining us today. Please check out the website. We are togetherinliteracy.com. We also have blog posts to accompany these episodes. Make sure that you uh, check those out. And of course, if you have a minute, please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies.
thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.